The Omicron variant, a new variant of COVID-19, is causing panic in global financial markets with huge stock sell-offs taking place worldwide. Are we standing on the precipice of a new economic downturn as the virus continues to mutate? And meanwhile, landlords in the United States are stooping so low as to target the children of adult tenants who they are evicting. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for a regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. And a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, has been released, which features a new lengthy introduction which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, we have a couple stories. I do want to talk about the impact. It's not simply the new variant of COVID-19. There's also announcements by the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, that inflation is indeed real and that the government plans to perhaps quickly move away from quantitative easing. As we record this show on Tuesday afternoon, the stock market again today tumbled. It lost in the morning about 800 points on Friday. It had the biggest loss of any day in 2021. It recovered on Monday, though, again, down Tuesday. Who knows? I mean, it goes up, it goes down. Turbulence, though, is an indicator of an underlying sense of certainly unease by the big investors, which, of course, are the biggest banks, the biggest corporations, the very, very rich. Anyway, what's your take on that? And then I do want to talk about this remarkable story. We'll do that afterwards about landlords in the United States putting children's names on eviction notices that impact their lives going forward. But let's start with the turbulence in the financial markets. Yes. Well, the way to understand that turbulence, the stock market gyrating uh, both here in the United States and to a considerable extent in stock markets around the world, 
that's a recognition of the business community that I want to make sure everyone else understands. The business community is saying that it has no confidence in the way that the capitalist system in the world, the business community, interwoven with the politicians that they mostly put into office, how they're going to handle the latest new variant on the COVID virus. I mean, you could not have a more dramatic sign that the people who look at the economic system are telling us, we know that both corporations and the government are incapable of preparing for this kind of an event, incapable of coping with it in any kind of reasonable way, and that therefore the safest thing we can do is get the heck out of stocks, stop investing in large corporations, sell whatever it is you own in them, because there's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of lost business, a lot of shutdowns, or at least there's no reason to be confident that that will not happen. And unless you're therefore willing to risk your money, sell your stocks. That's the message. So I think we should all listen to these folks and understand that what scares them should also scare us if we hadn't figured it out already. So let's look at what the economics at least are of this. First, interesting that the new dangerous variant happens in Africa. Why? The answer is, even though the disease has been less virulent in Africa than it has been, say, in Europe and the United States, less, it has been a place, because it's poor, that hasn't seen anywhere near the level of vaccination, because we allow private vaccine companies to charge whatever price they want, because they are more interested in selling where people can pay more, individuals or governments or health systems, so that the vaccine hasn't been made available in large parts of Africa on anything like the scale that the Europeans, many in Asia and in North America, have been able to see. And if you don't vaccinate people, then they continue to get the disease in very bad forms requiring hospitalization. And that is a fertile place in which the disease can find new forms. And that's exactly what the Omicron variant is. It's a new form. So part of the reason we have it Part of the reason we're so scared about it, part of the reason the stock market is gyrating around it, is because we allowed a unfair, unjust, very unchristian distribution of life-saving vaccines to exclude large parts of the world, which turn out to be among the places which generate these new variants. If you wanted a critique of capitalism and how it distributes products, well, here it is, if I may say so, in bold 
outline. Now the second thing. What did we learn, or more honestly, what did we not learn about the first two, three, four waves? No plans are in effect. What is going to be done? Everyone is running around like the proverbial chicken without their head anymore. Oh, a new variant. It's being dealt with as if this were the first time around, as if we just hadn't had two years of this viral pandemic. We should have in place everything necessary to cope with this latest one way better than we did before. But the stock market is telling us, oh, no, we're not ready. There's no reason to think we're ready. And indeed, if you look at the resistance to vaccination in the United States, if you look at resistance to wearing masks and to going through the other proven safety mechanisms that save individuals, if not from the flu itself, well, then at least from the hospitalization or the risk of dying. So we haven't solved that social problem, and therefore we are that much more vulnerable to whatever this new variant is. And are we going to be held hostage again by the pharmaceutical companies? Are they going to demand huge sales to the government before they've even invested in the vaccines we may need? Are we going to have months of negotiation which translate into tens of thousands of dead people before the government and the pharmaceuticals can work out something that profits those companies, even though their profits over the last two years are in record territory and they hardly need more? Well, you know the answers to those questions. I don't need to answer them. We are a system that is demonstrating to the world its incapacity to do something as fundamental as protect the public health. You didn't handle you, the capitalist system. You didn't handle this crisis very well. I don't want to remind everyone, but it's important to understand that the most powerful capitalist country in the world, the United States, which has four and a half percent of the world's population has already suffered somewhere around 16 percent of the world's deaths from COVID. A very rich country with a very well-developed medical system has demonstrated to us that it cannot do the job. Capitalism isn't equipped to handle this system. Countries with much less of a developed capitalist wealth system, with a much less developed medical care system, have done way better. I'll pick just one because the statistics are in my mind. The little country of Cuba, a so-called enemy of the United States, has done some remarkable things with its economic system, which isn't particularly capitalist. Number one, they've developed their own vaccines without a big private pharmaceutical company. They did it on their own. 
and it's the Sobrabor. And if you have three shots of it, that's the normal routine, three consecutive shots, it's 92% effective. You don't go to the hospital and you don't die. And how do we know? Because in Cuba, the rate of people dying from COVID is one-third on a per-person basis of what it is in the United States. A poor country, 11, 12 million people, versus the richest capitalist country, and they do a way better job across the board with no private profit pharmaceuticals, no big, powerful, rich country, a poor country embargoed by the United States, This is a sign of failure on a scale, which means we really ought to learn that the most important lesson of this new Omicron variant and of this entire awful experience with COVID-19 is that we have a system we should long ago have challenged, long ago have criticized, and long ago have put aside for better systems because this one simply doesn't do the job that any economic system would have to do to find people loyal to it. I couldn't agree more. And of course, COVID-19, as terrible as it is, was foreseeable. We've had other mass infectious disease outbreaks in the last 20 years the way globalization has you know tied the world together and the the nature of concentration the nature of urbanization bringing non-human animal life and human life closer and closer together it makes it all the more likely in fact inevitable that there will be another pandemic and and this is as you're saying a test case or certainly a case where people can measure for themselves the systems that work and don't work. And and one of the remarkable things about Cuba is that on November 15th, Cuba reopened its economy to tourism. I mean, the Cubans really took a big hit with COVID because after the Soviet Union collapsed, after the socialist camp disappeared, after the Cubans lost all of their trade partners and then had to face the you know, devastating consequences of a U.S. blockade, and it really is a blockade, without any real support from anyone else, it looked like Cuba was, you know, on the ropes, maybe going to go down as a government, as a revolution. And yet they survived somehow. You know, they had to retreat in some ways. But finally, they were sort of back on their feet with tourism. And then COVID came and the tourists couldn't come because they couldn't have their entire population devastated. So on November 15th, the day the tourism was supposed to resume, and by that date, the Cubans had said, we're going to vaccinate with our own vaccine, as you rightly said, we're going to vaccinate every Cuban two years old and up. And they did that by November 15th. Every Cuban is vaccinated two years old and up. And then the U.S. concentrated all of its attention on trying to stage CIA-supported, USAID-supported, NED-supported demonstrations in Cuba on November 15th to disrupt Cuba's ability to reopen its own economy. Really something. And then you think about China, another system. Again, we don't have to say China's the model or Cuba's the model, but it's a different model. I mean, the per capita income in China is $9,700 compared to the U.S. That's quite poor, still a poor developing country. 
But in Hubei province, where we first learned of COVID, a province of 70 million people, or Wuhan, the capital with 12 million people, they locked the province down completely for 76 days, but nobody lost their job. Nobody lost their business. Nobody went hungry. Mass organizations came and brought food to the people's homes. Doctors and nurses mobilized around the country. It wasn't simply the government. It was a real full-scale mobilization of the people, government-directed, but it was many, many mass organizations. And now we have, you know, Hubei is open for business and open for recreation. Families are picnicking. I mean, it really shows that this was not necessary. What's happened to the American people was indeed the byproduct of a system that has failed. It didn't fail when it came to the stock market. That came right back, but it certainly failed the people. You know, the Chinese example is worth a moment as well. And like you, this is not an endorsement of this or that policy of the Chinese government or how they do or do not treat their people. That's another matter, important matter, but that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how that system handled COVID-19 and how it is now gearing up to handle this new variant that everyone is frightened about. China has 1.3, 1.4 billion people. That means it has over four times the population of the United States. We have now suffered over 750,000, if my numbers are correct, and they're at least very close, 750,000 dead American citizens from this two years of virus. And the number of deaths in China, who has four times the number of people we have, is around 4,800, according to the Johns Hopkins University that keeps track of the numbers in the different parts of the world. Our country, 750,000. There is no contest here. There is no competition here. There's a winner and a tragic loser. And everyone who pays even the slightest attention knows which is which. And the lesson from that you can suppress, which is being done here in the United States. You can minimize it, but it will out sooner or later. The internet is an easy place to verify all these numbers. I invite anyone listening, do that, check it out, compare the U.S. record to the People's Republic of China, or for that matter, any other country. All of that's been done for you. It's right out there if you care enough to look at it. And I want to put it in historical perspective. Back in the 13th, 14th century, that's a long time ago, there was an unspeakable pandemic. It wasn't viral. It was a different kind of problem. It got a very famous name because it killed so many millions and millions of Europeans. It was called the Black Death. It was a bacteria, if my information is correct, carried by insects that lived on rats. And as the rats spread everywhere, they spread this disease 
which killed someone in the area of one-third of the citizens of Europe. Why do I tell you this? Because the system in place then was called feudalism. It wasn't employers hiring employees. That's capitalism. It was lords and serfs locked into a relationship in which the serfs did all the work and they delivered rents to the landlords who lived in those beautiful chateaus and castles that some of us have visited if we've had the good luck to go to Europe and visited the France and Germany and Italy and so on, where they have these things preserved. It was the end of feudalism. Feudalism never, it took centuries to pass out of existence, but feudalism never recovered. It was shaken to its core by the spectacle. The two-thirds of the people who survived the Black Death understood that the system they had lived in was incapable of protecting their health, their very lives, and they changed their attitude to to that system. They became not only its victims, but out of their victimhood, they became critics. And that combination of victimization and criticism, that is the end of every system. And we're living now through capitalism's equivalent experience of what the Black Death was to European feudalism. And I think what we're witnessing is a succession of panics and failures and freakouts. We don't even know very much about this latest variant. We don't even know whether it is lethal, whether it will be or will not be offset by the vaccines we have already taken. And even though we don't know, the panic is already setting in because deep down, everyone knows that this system cannot handle this. And that is a statement about a system that we should think long and hard about because it suggests that we are in for a very bumpy ride heading out because the system we're used to is fading. Richard, of course, like everyone else in the world, we're going to continue to follow this story again. As we pre-record our show today, the stock market is down again. By tomorrow, it may be up. We don't know. I heard a joke, and maybe it's not a joke, and certainly you would have heard it yourself being an economist, but I heard someone say economic forecasting was created simply to make astrology look credible. (laughs) Right. Right. There are a thousand such jokes, by the way, because of the truth of it, which is no one can predict the future. That's a joke. Anyone who tells you that they can do that is a person to whom you should stop paying any attention. And that goes for me, too. If you ever hear me confidently telling you what's going to happen three months from now, let alone three years, you should turn me off. I mean, go play tennis or do something else because it's silly. Everybody who thinks for a minute knows. Here's the problem, just so you understand. The big bucks in doing economics is to do exactly what you can't do. 
For example, I have been offered in my life more than a few times jobs working for big companies. In fact, the very first job, I don't mind mentioning it to you, my very first job offer when I was finishing my degree at Yale, because if you're finishing your degree at Yale, this sort of thing happens to you because it's Yale. I got a job offer from the Exxon Corporation, the oil company. What did they want me to do? They wanted me to work on a team, they said, when they recruited me, that would predict the oil market going forward in order for them to be well advised about where to invest their pipeline systems, their shipping systems, and all the rest of their investment portfolio, what would the market be like, where would there be the demand for oil, and so forth and so on. So I was offered an amount of money I I really had never thought of in my life. I wouldn't know what to do with it in order to do this kind of thing. And when I told them, that I had been a mathematician before I became an economist, and that I didn't want to inform them that paying me this money in order to predict the future, they might as well go to the nearest carnival, give one of those ladies a few quarters, and she'll tell you who you're going to marry in six years. When you go to the carnival, you know that that's an amusement. You don't get anxious about that person because you know they can't do that. You're willing to pay me big bucks And that's the truth of it. Economists, therefore, are tempted to go along with the crazy idea that they can tell you what's going to happen because they're paid so well to do it. Then if you actually do this kind of work, you discover what the reality is. And here it is in case you're interested. There's always an executive who hires you a vice president, a senior vice president, maybe even if it's not such a big corporation, the president of the company. And if you take the job and you work there for a while, here's what you discover. These guys at the top level, they have to make decisions. Are we going to spend $3 billion in East Africa to develop the oil industry there? They know they have to make the decision, yes or no. And they've made their decision before they call us the economists. They've either made the decision to do it, or they've made the decisions not to do it. Lord knows, I won't go into it, what went into their decision. But the decision's been made. That's why nothing is so common as sitting there, negotiating what you're being asked to do. They offer you whatever they pay you, and the pay is very good, But they also let you know with no ambiguity what your research is going to find. Your research is either going to find that it is a good investment or that it isn't. But they'll tell you which one it is. And then you go to work and you do your research. And you better come up with the desired answer. If not, that's the last contract for research you're going to see. So, of course, you do. And then you realize what this is about. This is a senior executive who knows that whatever decision he made, if it came out badly, if investing turned out to be a loser or not investing turned out to be a great missed opportunity, they're going to get fired unless they can call in hotshot experts and they can wave in the face of their superior the report we all wrote 
and demonstrate, oh, no, no, what I did was the right decision because, look, I had these experts who did all the research. Look, it may not save his job, but it's way better chance he might than if he didn't commission the report. That's what it is about. Only the deluded or the complicit economist would tell you otherwise. Well, that, Richard, is remarkably helpful, I think, for our audience, because people are taught, you know, the lay public, meaning us, the people, we, the people, we're taught, listen to the experts, listen to the experts, especially if they went to Ivy League schools, because they have, you know, knowledge, they have expertise, they have an objective faculty, you have to listen to them. You have to listen to them. And what you're telling us really is no matter where you went to college, including the top tier Ivy League school, no matter what your degree says, that when you're in the pay of the corporate capitalists, you're doing their bidding. And if in fact they need a scapegoat, you're also available to be that person too. Absolutely. you you, you. Look, I went to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. That's why I am in a position to tell you what happens. They weren't buying me. They weren't buying my expertise. They were buying my credentials so that they could wave them in the face of whoever questioned their decision and say, look, I went and I got the best. It's it's all flim-flam. It's just fancy flim-flam that a tragic proportion of the American people take seriously. Let me remind everyone listening of what they know. No one predicts the future. We can't do that. Nobody can do that. And to be other than amused by the person who tells you he or she can do it, Amusement is fine. I have no objection. It's a wonderful little game to play. What's going to happen to me next month? But if you take it seriously and start agonizing over the fact that you don't want that to happen, then you've misunderstood an amusement and taken it seriously, and then you need help. All right. Richard, I was going to ask you one more question, but we are actually out of time, and we're going to talk about it next week, because I do want to talk about it. And I want to talk about it when you have enough time to really break this down, because you're talking today about how the system, by any objective measure when it comes to COVID, has failed. There are many other places it's failed. But in addition to its failure, the system is also unethical, it's immoral, it's wrong from all human standards. And of course, this is the topic of landlords right now in the United States consigning young kids, poor kids, working class kids to a future where their own credit records and their ability to get apartments or homes later in life will be negatively affected because they're naming them in the current wave of evictions. Anyway, we're not going to talk about it now because we just don't have enough time, but we will talk about it next week. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. A new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, has been released. It features a new lengthy introduction which strengthens the case for why Marxism 
is worth understanding. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow with The Real Story. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.